trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. By the way, if you have a chance, trip on over to thebrianhydeshow.com. I have put together, uh, well, I'm building the archive of the, uh, the shows. You'll find the show notes there. Every article that I talk about, every, uh, every resource that I share is available there at your leisure. I know not everybody has time to sit down and digest a full, uh, I guess, you know, each hour comes out to about 42 minutes after commercials. So once it's posted, you know, you've got about 42 minutes worth of listen time. Not a bad thing if you have a fairly long commute. If you don't, well, some people are just quick readers and you will find links to all of the various articles that we talk about. And I've got some really good ones to share with you today. In fact, in this hour, well, let me just say this. You're going to get the impression that I am not a big fan of the New York Times. And you would be right. You would be absolutely correct. I'm I'm less than impressed with the New York Times. But... I think with good reason. In fact, let's start with them. I have uh, no less than three different stories involving the New York Times, and they all illustrate this very simple truth. Every one of us should keep a very healthy sense of skepticism. And particularly, I guess the New York Times, it's appropriate that, you know, they are the newspaper of record. All the news that's fit to print. And that's how they've styled themselves for many, many years, for generations. If it's important enough to be counted as news, you'll read about it in the New York Times. But that's not always the case. And in fact, uh, we're going to start with something a little bit closer to home here. Uh, The New York Times has been blaming churches, not riots, not massive protests, for a rise in positive COVID-19 tests. This is from an article published on TheFederalist.com. Holly Shear is the author. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I I have the curse of knowledge in that I've been skeptical of most mainstream sources for quite some time. So to me, it's like, well, of course, this is just so obvious. How could anybody possibly miss this? But there are those who would say, well, you know, you don't get to the New York Times without it being thoroughly vetted and being absolutely objective. And, and yet, uh, look all around you. There's evidence that isn't the case. Who was it? Uh, Barry uh, Weiss who just resigned from the New York Times. She canceled them before the guillotine could fall on her. And the reason she did was she said, there's, there's an oppressive culture of political correctness in their newsroom. Now, she is no right-wing figure by any long shot. But she said, it's, it's so difficult. If you, if you vary from the orthodoxy in any way, you are in deep trouble. So I'm going to give you some examples today about why, um, you know, this, it's not just the New York Times. This could be said of much of the mainstream media, which marches in lockstep. The New York Times is just kind of the, the what would you call it, the flagship of what we are supposed to think. They're the flagship bearer of the, the mainstream narrative. In this case, Holly Shearer reports in The Federalist that national tension and tempers are incredibly high after the rising numbers of COVID cases in America. You would agree, right? 
We're all on edge after months of lockdowns and shutdowns and quarantines, economic instability, school closures, and, of course, the surreal nature of social distancing. Holly says we're mad about recommendations that keep changing and the lack of control and transparency in how this pandemic has been handled. Churches shut down during the initial phases of the COVID panic. Many were in localities where officials imposed harsh rules on faith communities in an effort to halt worship. Just as a quick aside, it's bad enough in Chicago that Chicago's mayor, who is is no friend of either freedom or reality, has threatened to bulldoze churches that do not toe the line on her shutdown orders. I would expect that out of communist China. I would have expected that out of Stalinist Russia. Modern day Chicago. Uh, these churches are a public menace, a public nuisance. Send in the bulldozers. Or at least that's the threat. So on Wednesday, Holly Shear reports the U.S. topped 3 million cases of coronavirus. Also on Wednesday came an article from the New York Times titled, Churches were eager to reopen. Now they are a major source of coronavirus cases. Now, the New York Times later changed the headline, but you can still see the original. She's got it saved in her article. Now, as you'd expect from the not-so-subtle title, the New York Times blames rising numbers on churches, ministers, sermons, religious youth camps, specifically noting it has struck churches that that reopened cautiously with face masks and social distancing in the pews, as well as some that defied lockdowns and refused to heed new limits on numbers of worshipers. Now, overt shaming like this might make you wonder how many of these millions of cases trace back to the faithful, cautiously gathering for comfort and consolation during this pandemic. I mean, surely the caseload must be astronomical to warrant targeting in this matter. Except the article paints a different picture when you start looking at the actual numbers. From the article, more than 650 coronavirus cases have been linked to nearly 40 churches and religious events across the United States since the beginning of the pandemic. Whoa, whoa, whoa. In this case, uh, Holly Shear says, I'm no epidemiologist, but I don't need to be because simple math shows 650 out of 3 million cases across the nation means 0.0216% of them trace back to churches. That's less than one-tenth of 1%. That should not and cannot be called a major source of this infection. (laughs) And yet the Times presents the actions of churches and churchgoers in as negative a light as possible, writing, as the virus rages through Texas, Arizona, and other evangelical bastions of the South and West. Some churches that fought to reopen are being forced to close again and grapple with whether it even is possible to worship together in safety. Holy cow. Holly Shield says it's, it's, or Shear rather, says it's difficult or disingenuous to pin these caseloads of these states on churches when you ignore that contact tracing connects dozens of cases in Texas to churches out of their 230 and counting total cases. It's divisive. It's fake news. A tiny fraction of a percent can't responsibly or seriously be described as a major source of transmission. And besides that, she says it's a total distraction from what drives the predominance of coronavirus infections. When infections and transmissions are overstated like this, especially in a time of crisis, it makes it harder for the public to know who they should listen to, who they should trust for accurate information. In turn, this makes people more likely to make decisions based on feelings or, quote, knowledge shared by friends 
who may not have their facts straight. And isn't it interesting how church gatherings and protests are not treated alike? It isn't the faithful coming together to worship that has led to so many infections at the national level. Holly Shear says, I've talked to many clergy and parishes. None are treating this like a ruse or a joke. They take very seriously the health and well-being of their congregations, both spiritually and physically. She says, we keep hearing that we're all in this together, but it doesn't feel this way when everyday Americans are targeted for making their own decisions about what is essential. Congregations have worked hard to keep up with the changing information that health officials have shared about coronavirus. They've learned rapidly how to do services online, how to work with local health guidance on the size of gatherings, how to institute effective cleaning and disinfectant measures. Yet these additional actions often aren't enough to placate health departments. And she says they're apparently not enough for the New York Times either, which says, but as new cases and clusters have emerged in recent weeks from Florida to Kansas to Hawaii, public health experts have emphasized that even with social distancing, the virus can easily spread through the air when hymns are sung and sermons preached inside closed spaces. Wow. Of course, there's no word on when other gatherings where people are excited or passionate, say mass protests will be in the targeting sites of officials, either being together inside or outside, loudly championing a cause or singing a hymn is a recipe for COVID spread or it's not. In a crisis, religious people come together to receive God's peace and to help bear each other's burdens. The mixed messages and targeted anger at some groups while supporting the rights of other groups ignores that barring people from their faith community for month on, months on end has real and lasting repercussions for Americans. Holly Shear reminds us churches are working valiantly to reduce risk. And ultimately, this isn't about the right to hold services or if gathering in groups is risky. There is risk. Churches are working to address that. But so much of the writing and guidance on this is by people who don't seem to have any idea on what faith communities are actually doing in the age of COVID. Popular infographics cite churches as being in the highest risk category, in part because of the prevalence of surfaces that are frequently touched. Yet any church, especially one where families are distancing, that cleans between services and pays careful attention to keeping their neighbors safe, is no more high-touch than a grocery store, a restaurant, or a retail chain store. All of those are open without scrutiny and lecturing that's been aimed at churches. Okay, we'll come back to this in a moment. You want to join the conversation? Do so at 801-331-8113. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. And by the way, as much as I appreciate the telemarketer who called during the break, it's really just not the same. The conversation just never seems to go in a productive direction. 801-331-8113 for anyone else who would like to join the conversation. New York Times is on the hot seat today because they have been blaming churches, not riots, for the rise in, in uh, positive COVID-19 tests. This is an article published on thefederalist.com by Holly Shear. I'll have it posted in the show notes, which you can check out at lovingliberty.net or at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Here's the thing. One of the churches interviewed by the New York Times after a regional outbreak 
voiced the sentiment that there are, you know, other places like restaurants, grocery stores, chain retail stores that have been open without the scrutiny and without the lecturing that has been aimed at churches. In fact, uh, from the New York Times article, quote, Mr. Satterwhite, the pastor in Oregon, said that scrutiny had fallen unfairly on churches while businesses without breaks did not face the same backlash. That backlash and media attention, says Holly Shear, serves mostly as a distraction, making churches a convenient place to throw blame in a situation that for many of us feels uncontrollable. So if we're to deal with this pandemic for the foreseeable future, she says it's inconceivable that people will stay away from church. Death, mortality, fear, instability, and chaos are reasons we need more opportunities to be comforted in church. What Americans don't need is to be blamed and shamed for seeking eternal aid in a temporal crisis. Now, the church has endured plagues before and will stand for hope and peace no matter how uncertain life around us becomes. Attacking churchgoers right now is both disappointing and short-sighted. Holly Shear says, as we look at this crisis now spreading into the fall with no end in sight, media organizations that have focused on attacking based on politics and religion instead of fighting this pandemic need to feel some moral responsibility for dividing us when we desperately need to work together. This shouldn't be about ideology. It should be about evidence-based public health policies and restoring public trust in our institutions. I don't know about you. But my trust is, uh, it's not running so high these days. <laughs> Maybe it's just because I, you know, I don't know who I can trust. Well, yeah, no, I'll stand by that. I know what I can trust. And if it sounds like a cop-out, I'll still say it. My faith is the one thing that does not seem to shift underneath my feet. But I don't trust what the media is telling us. I don't trust what politicians are telling us. I noticed there was a huge media outcry. What? President Trump has ordered the uh, the hospitals that are reporting their COVID-19 cases to stop reporting them to the CDC and start reporting them to some third party organization that will tally the numbers. Now, I know for the politically driven, that's like, well, that's just politics. He wants them to report to his cronies who will then report them in the most favorable way. But let me ask you this. Why wouldn't it go both directions? Is it possible that the CDC has been cooking the numbers. Oh, I know, I know, Dr. Anthony Fauci said, trust me, <laughs> just like any politician would say, you can trust me, I wouldn't lie to you. And yet so many of the projections that he has followed, so much of the advice that he has given, has been immensely destructive and, and wrong. It's not so much a matter of, well, he's a Democrat, and that's why I can't trust him. It's a matter of those who have a vested interest, like, say, for instance, staying in power or staying relevant, will often do what provides them the greatest job security, including shading things in such a way as to remind us why we need them. I have to wonder sometimes if we aren't uh, being subjected to a form of official psychological terrorism. Now, my neighbor, Sarah, I know she listens to this program and she is studying psychology. So this is something I'm going to probably follow up with her because I want I want to see if any of this rings true. But uh, there's an article on ArmstrongEconomics.com. I'll include this in the show notes. It's titled Government and Media Induced Psychological Terrorism. And it says, anyone who ever took a class in psychology will recognize 
What the media and government are doing is clear psychological terrorism, which appears to be directed at breaking the bonds of civilization right down to the core. Now, I get it. For some people, that's going to be way too conspiratorial. All right, put on the tinfoil hat. Let's uh, let's get back to reality. But I want you to consider this. Civilization is created by people coming together and bonding. That's the foundation of a civilization built upon a mutual benefit for all. And civilization begins its decline when government crosses the line and sees itself as the creator of civilization in their delusional world of power. What they are doing with the aid of the press has been the deliberate instilling of fear in the air that's beyond belief. And this delusion knows no bounds, for they think they can tear the foundation of civilization apart to win at all costs. And then they assume it will, be, it will end and they'll be in power and will all be good. If you've heard of the book Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, that's spoken in terms of market boom and busts. However, using this coronavirus, these people have created this delusion on an unbelievable scale. And I believe the author here is Martin Armstrong. He says, I was walking down the beach and I saw a woman with an oversized hat, a gas mask and goggles. And he says, I was dumbfounded. You walk the beach for fresh sea air. This outfit was beyond description. He says, I just I wish I had my phone to illustrate how insane she was acting. The public is adopting what you would call a personality disorder that now threatens society as a whole. Any practicing psychiatrist specializing in anxiety disorders or paranoid delusions, not to mention irrational fears, will tell you that this is a very serious medical condition in an individual. Yet here we are dealing with a whole population. People have induced a primal fear of this coronavirus that has been escalated into mass panic solely for political purposes. It's clearly deliberate and totally irresponsible. The psychological damage would take years to address in an individual. Here, we're dealing with society. They're breaking civilization at its core, and this is the first required step to the breakup of the United States and Europe. People will no longer trust each other and fear they may be diseased and prefer to keep their distance. Once that begins, the economy starts to crumble. There will be no reversing this trend. Thank you, CNN, New York Times, and Washington Post, for your contributions to the destruction of not just the United States, but Western civilization. I saw a tweet earlier today that I thought spelled it out rather nicely, and that is, the reason you see most people wearing masks is not for safety. The reason most people are wearing masks today is because they want to avoid public condemnation. They want to avoid being socially shamed. Does that ring true to you? Because it certainly rings true to me. By the way, I'm going to include in the show notes, uh, there's a video from Ben Swan, one of the very few journalists out there who I think actually deserves the title of journalist. His investigative work is remarkable. And he has a great video, Why Face Masks Don't Work According to Science. And we're talking multiple studies over the last decade or so that have settled this question, not just in fighting COVID, but in the, preventing the spread of any respiratory virus. He breaks down the science for you. And I'm not saying that, you know, Ben is infallible, but I will tell you this. The guy checks his facts very good. He's, he's extremely meticulous about backing up what he says. And best of all, 
I've seen this happen before. If he gets something wrong or if if more information requires that he recant or he change what he has said and clarify it, he doesn't stubbornly double down and say, well, you know, well, I was still actually right. He'll just tell you, okay, so this part we got wrong. How many journalists have you seen that are willing to do that, right? (laughs) Not very many. I'll post it in the show notes. Again, you can get them at LovingLiberty.net. You can also pick them up at uh, TheBrianHydeShow.com. There's a special section there specifically for show notes with links to the podcast version of today's show. Just in case you want to go back and hear me get riled up all over again. Stick around. We're going to take the New York Times to task a little bit more just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eight, let's try that again. 801-331-8113. I'm holding up the New York Times as kind of the... Uh, the flagship of disinformation, and of course, they're not alone. There are many media outlets out there, and you know, some people will say, oh, are you just saying this is a big conspiracy? I don't know if it's conspiracy. I don't know if it's consensus, but I know that there is a lot of misinformation out there, and in the case of the New York Times, it's, it's a historical reality that they have engaged in fake news on a mass and very ugly level before. One of the best examples I learned about uh, some time ago, I guess probably about a year ago, when our friend Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education introduced me to the name of Walter Durante. And if you're not familiar with this name, I'm going to give you a quick snapshot here. I have two remarkable articles, one from Jem Mafasanti and one from uh, Jeffrey A. Tucker, both writing about the New York Times covering up one of communism's worst atrocities. Now, the thing was, this was back in the 1930s. I want to start with Jen Mafasanti's column here. Mr. Jones shows fake news is a historic reality and it's no laughing matter. Now, I haven't seen the movie, but it makes me want to see it, if only because it appears that there, there is some truth to be gleaned from this Hollywood depiction of what took place. Jen starts by pointing out one of the great universal truths is everybody lies from tiny white lies to great big whoppers. Everybody does it, even babies. She says, don't believe me. Sorry, I'm late. Traffic was terrible. It's so great to see you doing well. Thanks for asking. I have read and agreed to the above terms and conditions. All right. You get the point. These are just a handful of the easy, casual lies that we all offer up on an everyday basis. And much of the time, these kinds of lies are fairly harmless. These tiny deceptions are baked in the most of most of our social interactions. And in many ways, they grease the wheels of polite society. After all, how awkward and uncomfortable would our conversations be if we actually told the truth every time someone asked how we're doing? By the way, Ricky Gervais has a wonderful movie called The Invention of Lying that uh, illustrates this as perfectly as it could be done. Just something you might want to consider watching. It's actually a very touching show. Now, Jen Mafasati says, these are lies that we expect to be told and are expected to tell. And she says, while I would personally like to see more honesty in everyone's day-to-day interactions, I understand the purpose of these kinds of deceptions. That said, the truth always matters. 
We may expect some level of insincerity in certain situations, but in others, honesty is more than simply suggested. It's required. For instance, when it comes to reporting news, telling the truth is vitally important. The term fake news has been abused to the point of uselessness, but fake reporting does exist and it has for a long time. The information we receive through various media outlets and platforms is frequently critical for how we plan our days, how we plan our lives. When that information is false, intentionally or not, it can cause us very real problems. She says sometimes the consequences are simple and relatively benign, like getting caught in the rain without an umbrella. Sometimes, though, and especially with intentionally misleading or false information, the results can be devastating to livelihoods and lives. One of the most egregious examples of this was the coordinated cover-up of the Holodomor, a famine in the Ukraine deliberately created by the Soviet Union in 1932 and 1933. In the span of a year, decreased output due to the forced collectivization of farms and the confiscation of foodstuffs by the Soviet Army led to the deaths of between 7 and 10 million people, mostly ethnic Ukrainians. It was, in short, a genocide by means of starvation. Freelance reporter Gareth Jones broke the story. He did what he was supposed to do as a journalist. He told the truth. Unfortunately, Jones' reporting shined an incredibly unflattering light on the fact that the news reports coming out of Moscow regarding the impressive successes of Soviet agriculture were false. Walter Duranty, the Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times and the rest of the Foreign Press Corps in Moscow, promptly launched a coordinated campaign to discredit Jones' reporting, despite the fact they all knew Jones was telling the truth. Eugene Lyons, who was the Moscow correspondent for United Press at the time, even wrote in his 1937 book, Assignment in Utopia, quote, Throwing down Jones was as unpleasant a chore as fell to any of us in the years of, jugg- in years of juggling facts to please dictatorial regimes. But throw him down we did, unanimously and in almost identical formulations of equivocation. Poor Gareth Jones must have been the most surprised human being alive when the facts he so painstakingly garnered from our mouths were snowed under by our denials. There was much bargaining in a spirit of gentlemanly give and take under the guidance or under the effulgence rather of foreign press corps Soviet official Konstantin. Konstantin Umansky's gilded smile rather before a formal denial was worked out. We admitted enough to soothe our consciences, but in roundabout phrases, that damned Jones as as the damned Jones as a liar. The filthy business having been disposed of, someone ordered vodka and zakuski. End quote. Now, Jen Mafasadi says it should be noted both Duranti and Lyons were true believers in the communist cause. They didn't hesitate to use their positions as arbiters of truth to deceive the Western world regarding the actual situation in the Soviet Union. As a result, around 10 million people were starved to death during the Holodomor. And yet the Soviet Union continued to be propped up by Western governments and their investments. Furthermore, in total, approximately 100 million people have been killed by communist states since the Bolshevik Revolution, which was allowed in part by the deceptions of professional, quote, truth-tellers. Now, she says this is not to say that bias in and of itself is to blame. Another great universal truth is that everyone has some kind of bias. No matter how hard we try to be objective and relate just the facts, at least a little bit of that bias is going to show through. But there isn't anything inherently wrong with having a bias, especially when it's acknowledged. The problems come when the bias in people we rely on to report the actual facts 
internally absolves them of telling outright lies to further their ideological goals. And she says, by the way, this is not a problem of the past either. Whether it's an incident of claiming to have COVID-19 when they don't, and she has a link to that story, by the way, or building an entire career out of fabricated news articles, the long and sordid story of falsified reports continues to this day. And she says this kind of reporting isn't simply lying either. Blithely passing along uninvestigated press releases or unconfirmed allegations as fact also damages our trust in the news media. Given how common such reporting is, it's no wonder trust in news media in the U.S. is about 29%. And then we wonder why so few people comply with suggestions and warnings given by the news media. A commonly offered solution to this problem with the news media trust is fact-checking by a small handful of officially approved arbiters. However, she points out the reason that Durante and members of and the New York Times, rather, Lyons and the United Press and other members of the Foreign Press Corps in Moscow were able to cover up the horrors of the Holodomor is precisely because just a handful of media outlets were considered legitimate. Policies, regardless of who institute them, that centralize the distribution and judgment of truth would end up doing the opposite of what they intend. We'd be right back to the old days of journalism where media monopolies could spread misinformation largely unchallenged. Jen Mafasati says it's not hard to find some pretty spectacular fact-checking failures. She's got links to several of them here. And this is beside the fact that people tend to reject fact-checks that contradict their core beliefs regardless. We in the U.S. enjoy fairly robust legal protections for free speech and a free press, which is, to be clear, a good thing. But what can we do when reporters don't do their jobs correctly? She says the solution is not to curb or to restrict speech that doesn't meet certain criteria. And it's certainly not to limit the sources of various kinds of information. The only way to improve speech is to encourage more speech. We need an actual marketplace of ideas where consumers of information are able to judge for themselves what sources of that information meet their quality requirements and which do not. The solution isn't a single official voice of truth. It's billions of voices. It's the competition of different ideas and their purveyors. It's individuals thinking for themselves and accepting the responsibility that comes with that. She says the reason the true believers of the Moscow Foreign Press Corps faked their stories was that they feared the truth would hinder the cause they'd placed their faith in. But if a cause can be crushed by the simple telling of truth, it's not much of a cause at all. The truth matters, and the truth will out, even in our world of fake news and clickbait, but only if we let it, and only if we demand it. What an amazing article. You will find this in the show notes again at LovingLiberty.net and also on my website, TheBrianHydeShow.com. I'm also going to include another article here from uh, Jeffrey Tucker. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. I think what I'll do is I'll share a couple of excerpts from that when we come back from our break. Uh, Again, this is talking about the film Mr. Jones, and it features uh, Walter Durante of the New York Times. Jeff Tucker has a take that's worth hearing on this. Also, coming up in the next segment, I'm going to share something with you, or at least most of something with you, that sounds like it should be totally horrible. You know, something along the lines of sauerkraut mixed with ice cream. I wanted to hate it, but it's so awesome that I can't. Stick around. You'll hear what it is.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I know it seems like I'm being extremely unreasonable with the New York Times. And if you bought stock in the New York Times, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just I think that it's it's a great historical example to point out that when someone gets ideologically involved, they can set aside their ethical concerns, as in the case of, of journalist or uh, do I dare even call him that uh, reporter Walter Durante, who covered up the murder of millions, the starvation of millions of people in Ukraine under the reign of Joseph Stalin. I haven't seen the film, Mr. Jones. Apparently this came out last year, but um, I'm putting this on my list of films I really want to see. By the way, I'm going to include in today's show notes uh, an essay from Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. And he takes the New York Times to task in in a very dignified, but I think very thorough way, pointing out that the resignation from former New York Times editor and writer Barry Weiss was so powerful because it seemed to state what many once loyal readers, he says, I've been among them for years, even given the obvious bias of the paper, already knew, given the way things have been going there the last year or so. Something has been very wrong at the newspaper of record, and Barry Weiss named it in a very satisfying letter writing with a burning desire to tell the truth. This is what she said. Op-eds that would have easily been published just two years ago would now get an editor or a writer in serious trouble, if not fired. If a piece is perceived as likely to inspire backlash internally or on social media, the editor or writer avoids pitching it. If she feels strongly enough to suggest it, she's quickly steered to safer ground. And if every now and then she succeeds in getting a piece published that does not explicitly promote progressive causes, it happens only after every line is carefully massaged, negotiated, and caveated. Now, Jeff Tucker says that this paper, dogma has replaced reporting. Ideology has displaced facts. All facts are filtered through an agenda. And if something doesn't fit the agenda, it's not reported. He says, I've become so frustrated with this, especially during the lockdown months in which the paper seemed to have a rule of blaming the virus and not the policy response for all existing problems that I find it barely readable anymore. Now, precisely when this happened is unclear. Some say the woke generation has figured out how to troll the old time liberals that used to run the shop. Some would say the 1619 project, which might have been an interesting and important coming to terms with the dark side of American history but instead turned into a full-on trashing of every American value plus the existence of capitalism itself. By the way, there's a masterful response by Phil Magnus in book form. He has a link to that as well. Jeff Tucker says, My own overwhelming consciousness that something had fallen apart started on February 27, 2020 with the New York Times podcast. Reporter Daniel McNeil told the host of this podcast that this is alarmist, but I think right now it's justified. This one reminds me of what I have read about the 1918 Spanish influenza. Reminds him? That's his justification for spreading international panic? He claimed, if you have 300 relatively close friends and acquaintances, six of them would die. The host of the show summed up McNeil's message. 2% lethality rate of 50% of the country, meaning 3.5 million dead. Now, McNeil didn't disagree. And Jeff Tucker says, I was stunned because there was zero evidence for such outlandish claims. Not even Neil Ferguson predicted anything that ridiculous. 
Meanwhile, genuine experts were desperately trying to calm people down, even as the New York Times was spreading maximum panic, probably for political reasons. In the weeks and months since then, the paper's coronavirus doctrine was set in stone. And it goes like this. This is a terrifying pandemic. Many millions will die. Everyone is vulnerable. The only solution is to lock down. If we don't lock down, it is Trump's fault. Therefore, Trump is responsible for all death. And that message has been repeated thousands of times every day in every way ever since. That's not science. It's not reporting. It is fanatical ideology in the guise of reporting. And thank goodness former Times reporters like Alex Berenson call them out daily. Now, Jeff Tucker says readers see this and say to me, hey, things have never been right at this paper. He says, I would dispute that. From 1934 to 1946, the great economic journalist Henry Hazlitt wrote not only a daily editorial, but also curated the book reviews. There were times when the name Ludwig von Mises appeared on the front page of that review section with glowing reviews of his books. Even looking back at the paper's virus coverage of the post-war past, the rule was always the same. Bring calm and urge trust of medical professionals to manage the disease, but otherwise keep society functioning. That's what the paper said in 1957 to 58 with the Asian flu and in 1968 to 69 with the Hong Kong flu. The paper has a long tradition of trying to find that vital center while allowing editorials on either end of that so long as they seemed responsible. It's a great piece. And he does, uh, you know, as as Jen Mafasanti did in the last segment, um, Jeff Tucker also points out now there was a very appalling, inexcusable exception to that responsible approach to journalism. And that was Walter Durante, the Times bureau chief in Moscow from 1922 to 1936. But just keep in mind, in the last few months, here's what the Times has done. And they should not be left off the ho- let off the hook for doing this. They've attributed terrible economic fallout not to the lockdowns, but to the virus. They've attributed virus fallout to the failure to lock down enough. They've deliberately confused readers about the difference between tests, cases, and deaths. They never focus on the incredibly obvious demographics of C-19 death, average age, 82, with underlying conditions. The New York Times also ignores completely the primary victims of lockdowns, especially small businesses, the poor and minority groups, marginalized communities, artists, immigrant communities, small towns, small theaters, and so on. And they do not publish anything that speaks of the path that all civilized countries prior dealt with new viruses. The vulnerable protect themselves while everyone else gets exposed with resulting immunity. Sweden did as well as any country because it refused to violate human rights. The Times has also dismissed any alternative to lockdown as crazy, unscientific, and cruel, while acting as if Fauci speaks for the whole of the scientific community. And above all, they have promoted panic over calm. Now, in 1932, he points out there weren't a lot of alternatives to the New York Times. Today, there are. And that means, as far as what can be done, it's up to each of us to get smart, get moral, sniff out and reject the lies, and find and tell the truth in other ways. I think that's a solid way to approach it. And I echo his uh, his call to don't wait for somebody to tell you what the truth is. Become accustomed to finding it yourself. All right. You ready to shift gears? You ready to do something fun? I want to play something for you that uh, I, I swore I would hate. I wanted to hate it, but I couldn't because it was so awesome. 
give a listen, and I'll check back in here in just a moment or two. Set sail that day for a three-hour tour A three-hour tour Oh, it makes me wonder Okay, you got. If you want to see the rest, you're going to have to click on the video. It will be in the show notes. But to get the full effect, you got to understand this is being sung by a clown, puddles, pity party, and this is actually one of the most amazing things I have heard in ages. That's puddles playing the air guitar. Okay, all right. I had to get it out of my system. I'm serious. I did not want to like that. And I thought it was kind of a weird video to start with, but it impressed me so much that I thought I would share it with you. And so we end today's tirade on a little bit happier note. <laughs> Check out the video. It's in the show notes at LovingLiberty.net, or you can find it on my website under show notes at TheBrianHeightShow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.